Welcome to the Giles Files, and my name is Nancy Giles. I can remember when I was growing up, I mean, the first weather guy I remember, because I grew up in New York, was mm. Tex Antoine. Oh, yes. <laughs> but there was there would sometimes be like a weather girl. Yes. And you didn't, they weren't necessarily trained the way that you were, or thought of in the same way. And in mm. some cases, that would be a female's way of getting into mm -hmm. broadcasting. It was like a door in. Mm -hmm. You're not a weather girl. No. When did that all change, and, and what brought you in? What hooked you into being a meteorologist? Mm -hmm. That is the smart and sassy Janice Huff. We love Janice's energy and her enthusiasm. She is funny, she's fierce, and she's a pageant winner to boot. Oh yes, we have the proof. Check our Instagram page for pictures. We hung out with Janice at her office at NBC Studios, the famous 30 Rock in Midtown Manhattan. People in the field of weather and meteorology, people who actually go to college and get degrees and we're born this way, I kid you not. Uh, we probably, from inside the womb, like there's something that happens and it's like, you're gonna, that's what you're gonna be because we all have this thing when we're little. I remember when I was like four or five years old and I was like a little girl and I would sit out on the porch with my grandfather. I grew up in, I was born here in New York, but I grew up in South Carolina. Right. And my grandparents lived in a log cabin in the country. They had no running water, they had electricity, but no running water, they had outhouses in the whole nine yards. Wow. And my grandfather, used to, you know, people would sit on their porches and watch cars go by and wave at everybody that goes by and blow the horn, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> There's neighbors, someone so that lives down the road coming by. So we would sit on the porch a lot and he would always sit out when there were storms. Like the, as a storm was coming up, you know, he would sit on the porch and that sometimes I would sit on the porch because, and I would notice things about the dynamics of storms that I had no idea was a thing until I started studying meteorology, but that right before the storm hits, there's a cool rush of wind that comes down. That's the downdraft from the storm. That's the cold air that comes down, uh, rushes down from the storm. Sometimes it's really strong wind, and sometimes it knocks things over. Um, but you would all, could always tell, like if a certain corner of the sky got dark, which direction the storms were coming from. Like it was a science, a thing, but I was paying attention to the things he was showing me or that he was paying attention to without like real science or knowing the science yet. But I was fascinated by these things like thunder and lightning and storms and I was definitely afraid of course and the, he would sit out there and the lightning would get closer and the thunder would get louder and if it got too close I would run into the house <laughs> and he would just sit out there like it was no big deal he's in a covered porch but still you know you're not supposed to do that but but at that young an age you were taking all I was in. taking it all in the fact that my grandmother was like you don't get on the phone you don't get near the dishes you don't walk you know get near water we had to go sit in her room and not talk like we had to be really really quiet and so there are all these little things like why does that happen like what makes lightning and why is there thunder when there's lightning and what you know all these things and so that got my mind going and then when I was like nine or ten my mother bought us me, me the world book encyclopedia we all remember the yes. world book we didn't have computers then, so that's how we got information and I was an only child and some days I felt like playing with kids and some days I did and I was kind of a bookworm so I would read the encyclopedia oh my like when I would get really bored or if it was raining out I would pick a letter, here's a letter, hit a letter B, letter D, and one day I had the letter M book. And so I was just paging through the book and I saw the word meteorology and I started reading it and then I realized this is what you call it, this is the study of, of weather and climate and I thought, oh, I like that, let me read more as I read more and more and more and that's kind of where it started and then I decided from that moment 
I think that's what I'm going to get a degree in because I always loved science. Meteorology was the one that stuck because I was fascinated by the weather. You know what's so funny is you're born in New York, but you're raised in South Carolina. Mm -hmm. Had you stayed in New York, let's just say, and had a city existence, mm -hmm. who's to say you would have had that time sitting on the porch with your grandfather and your grandma and mm -hmm. seeing all that stuff? It would it could have been completely different. It would have been completely different. Who knows what I would have majored in or done or whatever. I mean, I may have had those experiences maybe when I visited my grandparents, maybe in the summer or something, but who knows? This is the thing about life. It's all these things that happen in your life that if something else different had happened, where would you be? And I always say everything happens for a reason. And there are dynamics and forces in play that you have no real control over that sort of takes you on a path. You have choices whether you go one way or the other, but it takes you on this path that leads to the things that you want. Just in coming in the building, how many people stopped to hug you and kiss you? And Janice, Janice, <laughs> she's the best. My producer Nancy White and I were like, "Look at this! It's, it's not even fake." Um, it's I don't know. I mean, I I am who I am. I you guess. have that reputation as being very, uh, very sincere on air and off. There's not a lot of delineation. No, you're probably getting the, the exact same person. I my my personality is pretty steady as it goes. Um, and I have a pretty decent outlook on life and things, and so I just would rather be happy than not. You just celebrated your 25th anniversary here. Yes, it's amazing. I still can't believe that 25 years has passed. I'm like, what happened to the time? It went so fast, but yeah, 25 years here in this building, which is so rare for anyone. So I talk to someone like stagehands and people like behind the scenes. They've been here 35 years, they've been here 40 years, but on-air people don't last as long. As a matter of fact, in our group, Chuck Scarborough has been here the longest 45, 46 years wow. on the air. And then I'm second. And for a woman, that's also a very, very long record because as we know, unfortunately, women's lives as on-air people don't seem to last as long as men. They do not. No offense to Chuck Scarborough. No, no, no. But you, who's great, yes, but, hmm. but you are right. And what's interesting is I, I, I had a bit of hope injected into my psyche when I was in, I think, Buffalo. We were at Niagara Falls and I turned on the TV to watch the news. And there was a woman there who had been on the air probably... 40-something years. There was actually a female anchor. She was probably 70 years old or 70-something oh years. And I was shocked to see her because you don't see that. But there are some places in smaller markets where you actually still see older women still on the air and thriving. I know. I, I, I was so excited to see it. It's Damn rare. straight. Yes. Now we should be there. Okay, well, I noticed you have got all these awards. She just won a big meteorolo yeah. meteorological. Inducted as a fellow. Yes, into the AMS. AMS. Yes, um, that was, thank you That's very really much. That's cool. Yeah, yeah, it is huge because of many reasons. One, um, there is such a small percentage of people that actually get inducted as a fellow every year um, in the society. You have to be a member of the society, of course, and you have to have contributed something in the in into the meteorological field uh, over years of service okay. uh, in your career. Um, I'm still trying to figure out what that was for me. I, th I think it's just in broadcasting, being a woman, um, being a chief meteorologist for 24 years at WNBC in the number one market, and mentoring so many um, young people. We have interns. I've had many, many interns over the years who have gone off and gotten jobs in television and are working. And 
you know, just being there for, you know, some of the young people. So I was nominated and inducted in the same year, which rarely happens that usually if they don't pick you one year, you go back into the pool and then they have to vote again. And, and then after like three years, you have to start all over again. Holy mackerel. And I had no idea any of this was happening until the AMS contacted me. Oh, that man. People had to write letters on my behalf. My, one of my professors from college wrote a letter. Um, Florida State University. Florida State, yeah. yes. Several other people who are esteemed in, in the field wrote letters on my behalf. And I was really, really surprised. It, it, it made me tear up, really, because I never thought that would happen to me. I mean, My we're talking goodness. about people like um, Ted Fujita, who invented the Fujita scale for tornado ratings. He's, He's a winner. He was a fellow. So he, these are real people I mean, these of are, note. Uh, yes, yeah. people of note. This is not uh, some vanity award no, that you get. No, it's not. This is real it really serious. is. And there are very few broadcasters that get inducted. Very few. Having known what it means to be a fellow and what it takes to be a fellow or even to get nominated to be one, um, yes, I was stunned. You know, it's so great to hear also that you, you've been mentoring for such a long time, mentoring through university, mentoring with the other young mm -hmm. meteorologists and, mm -hmm. and uh, TV people because um, it's so important for them to see someone like you doing this kind of work and being in science. We interviewed Derek Pitts, who's oh. uh, who's at the um, Ben Franklin yeah. Science Museum in Philadelphia, mm -hmm. and talked about science and education and mm -hmm. science. Because I I wasn't really well educated in science. I didn't mm -hmm. see other women really doing it, and I never got good teaching behind it. Right. What was your experience growing up? You had the interest there. Did you feel like you got some good preparation? Well, I I, I had the interest. I felt I got pretty good preparation. I probably could have always used more. But the interesting thing about going into a field of study that you have no clue about, I mean, I I believe I, I, when I was reading the encyclopedia, one of the people who came up was June Bacon Bursey, who just passed away recently in July. She was the first African-American woman with a degree in meteorology. First of all, ever to get a degree African-American in 1952 or 54 from like UCLA. She was the first one to do television oh my in goodness. Buffalo in 1972. She was the first woman and the first African-American, male or female, to receive the AMS seal of approval for excellence in television weathercasting. Um, I forgot her number. I think her number is like seal number 95 minus 377. <laughs> like, oh. But an amazing inspiration and icon for women like me. When I grew up, watching the news on TV. There weren't women who looked like me doing television weather. There weren't any black women. There were, and there were women, but there were the weather girls. The weather girls, the cutesy, the, yes. blonde miniskirts. Yeah. Not to take away from Not these to take away, no, because they were a, moving on to something else. That's right, but there was a, defi but the, a definitive image there. Absolutely, yeah. and we're not, you know, I'm not the weather girl. And what's interesting, I was actually on a, a broadcast uh, with a friend of mine, Dr. Marshall Shepard, who's a professor at the uh, University of Georgia. And he has a show called Weather Geeks on the Weather Channel. <laughs> but he, but, and he's African-American, but he, it's a podcast now, but he actually had a show in the beginning on the Weather Channel. And he invited me and a couple of other women on to talk about uh, We're Not the Weather Girls. That was the topic. And mm. to explain women in meteorology and how we have degrees like the men too. And we're, you know, we have expertise and so forth. And we're, we're scientists. And of course there are still people who use that term. Weather girls, that's a term that just sort of like floats in the ether and sort of stays there. Not so much because, you know, look, my grandmother could never pronounce meteorologist, so 
I would never get on her case for calling <laughs> me a weather girl. But um, but people know now. They know that we're meteorologists and that meteorologists. It's sort of like with the National Weather Person's Day. It used to be called National Weatherman's Day. Oh. But it had to change. And isn't that interesting? Because weatherman had the professionality behind it. Yes. That term. Weather well, the girl, girl did not. Though. Right. Yeah. Right. It did not. Yeah. Was it always your intention to do on air? No. Because I'm assuming there are other oh, no. aspects. My first job ever, ever that I ever had. You know how a lot of kids, like, in high school, you worked at McDonald's. Right. You did, like, all these, you worked in restaurants. My very first job was when I graduated from high school was with the National Weather Service. What? Yeah, so, wow. okay, this is how this happens. There's a, a thing called a student traineeship, which was like an internship with the National Weather Service. It was a national thing, but you worked in, like, local forecast offices. And so... I got an internship, the, and it was paid, so that's why I said the very first job ever. I was actually a government employee, GS3. Um, I got annual leave and sick leave, just like regular employees. I got paid a regular salary for this. But what was fantastic about this is that I had not even started college yet. This was the summer before college, and I was working with alongside real meteorologists and forecasters, but I was also working around other African-American forecasters. There were women and men who had been recruited by the National Weather Service to help diversify the science. They were all mathematicians. They had majored in mathematics, which is the same thing as any science. Math is science. That's what math it is. Math is science. That's what it is. You're gonna, if you're going to study any science, you might as well call yourself a mathematician. So, <laughs> um, so I got to work. I got to have mentors of people who looked like me. So mm. I knew it was possible. Like mm. I knew just by seeing them, it was possible. So that's where my career track was going, was weather service, government, uh, working as a forecaster. And I, they taught me everything you could teach anybody there. I learned how to do everything. I was even there when they transitioned from teletype machine communication, the yellow tape <laughs> in the machine, to the computer system. Yes, yes. I was there for that mm. transition. Mm. So I, I saw all sorts of facets of everything that they did. They did everything in that office, nor weather radio, uh, hydrology. The second year, the second summer I worked there, I was the interim hydrologist because... Which the, means what? Well, the, What well, is a hydrologist? The hydrologist is the person who, who forecasts what happens with water when it lands okay. in the rivers and lakes. And so they're the people that forecast that. And so I, our hydrologist was taking another job in another place. And so they said, well, it'll be the end of the summer before the new person starts. So you're going to be in charge of the hydrology desk the whole summer. That's your, that's your thing. So I took all the information. Like, I didn't for, do the forecasting. But people would call in, or we had automated rain gauges and, and, and river gauges. I had to log all this information and this, that, and the other. And it, it was really... Exciting because I thought, wow, I'm like a this. I'm, this is like a real job here. No, it's literal on the job. On training. the job training, I learned so much of that, and that made it even better. I was doing things that my classmates would never get to see until they graduated from college, if they got to do those jobs. This is fascinating because I think a lot of people think when they think about meteorologists mm -hmm. and that kind of work, they think about the people on the radio and the people on TV. Because that's what they see. That's what you see. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You don't realize there's a whole, like Nancy was saying, there's a whole line of work that's behind the scenes. So much. That's the real, you know, roll up your sleeves yes. work. Oh yeah, the people who get all the data that we use every day to make our forecast. There are people gathering that data with weather balloons, satellite data, there's all kinds of data streaming in, and somebody else does that. There are people who, um, who put together satellites, there are people who do satellite technology. 
that's weather satellites, not just television communication right. satellites. So <laughs> right. there's like there's a myriad of people all around the world doing all kinds of work, weather forecast modeling. You know the 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 computers that um, the formulas that make help make weather forecasts into the future that we use every day. There's people that came up with those that had to you know actually uh, go in and make the and get it right. You right. know it's, it, there's it, it's it's endless really the types of jobs that you can have. Oh, that, we don't oh. talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, did you hear the sure Did I you thought. hear the voice drop, <laughs> Giles Files listeners? Did you hear her voice drop? Oh, nothing, <laughs> nothing against the Farmers Almanac. Okay. They have their own system of yeah. doing things, but that's not as nearly as accurate Except as the crops. And it, it was it was designed for the farmers. That yeah, when yeah. it when it first came out, yes, and I can't tell you exactly everything that they use. It's more of climatology than anything. Okay. So they don't do like a day-to-day, -day, I mean, a day-to-day -day forecast is not what they it's do. Not based on uh, no, because no, they come out with the, the year's forecast a year ahead. A year ahead. Yeah. It's oh, like, yeah, I was wondering. Yeah. yeah right. Uh, right. <laughs> it's like, uh, now they have their own system, so it's not the same, it's not a part of what we do. Know your damn history. Sing it with me. Know your damn history. One more time. Know your damn history. That's right, because we got some classical in there. Know your damn history. Picture this. It's 1971, Buffalo, New York. And you're a trained meteorologist. Huh, way more than a weather girl. But can't seem to get hired as one. So you're working as a local TV reporter. Your favorite quote is from the great scientist Louis Pasteur. Chance favors the prepared mind. And something crazy happens. The meteorologist from your station robs a bank to pay off some big gambling debts, and he gets himself arrested. <laughs> the station's desperate, but you are prepared with a spot-on weather prediction, and the station hires you the very next day. Chance favored the prepared mind. Yes, sir. And June Bacon Bercy was on her way to blazing a trail in the world of meteorology as the first African-American woman to broadcast weather on TV. That's right. She was born in Wichita, Kansas, studied at UCLA, and despite her college advisor, who advised that she go into home economics, according to Bercy, I got a D in home economics and an A in thermodynamics, all right? She never looked back, earning her bachelor's and master's degree in meteorology. In 1972, Bercy was also the first African-American and the first woman to be awarded the prestigious seal of approval from the American Meteorological Society. And what a resume this girl had, working at the Atomic Energy Commission, the National Weather Service, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. The woman even went back to school and earned a second master's degree in journalism from USC. I mean, damn. And get this, Bercy won $64,000 on the game show, The $128,000 Question. 
She used her $64,000 to start a scholarship fund for other girls to study atmospheric sciences. Excuse me, other women. Bercy told the Washington Post, that was my plan from the beginning. I was discouraged from becoming a meteorologist and other women were discouraged. If they feel they've got some money behind them, it might be better. Her daughter hopes to honor her mom by reviving the fund. June Bacon Bercy was 90 when she passed away. Man, what an amazing legacy. So what courses are you taking towards meteorology? Oh, um, physics, physics math. math, what kind of more math? physics and more math, <laughs> and more physics and more <laughs> math. Chemistry too, I guess? Not no? much, I mean, I think you there's some chemistry. I know about science. Well, there's, there's atmospheric chemistry. Okay, good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, well, the forecasting part was was easy, but the math stuff was crazy. Like mm-hmm. there was all these calculus classes, of course, mm-hmm. and then there was differential equations, and then there was vector analysis, and a whole bunch of stuff. I was so glad they took the vector analysis out of the curriculum because I'm thinking, why are we doing this? Because I did not do well in that class. But uh, I ended up you end up with a minor in mathematics. And do you use a lot of that now? Um, me, no. <laughs> Not, well, I mean, you use it, but I mean, in terms of the mathematics, that's basically all built in the computer model. Right. So right. you don't have to like sit down and figure out a forecast using a mathematical equation. No, because there's so many of them. Mm-hmm. That's what the computer has taken care yeah. of that for you. Yeah. Um, you can look at the result of what the computer has figured out. Mm-hmm. Um, the physics is just it's just basically the um, the basics of thermodynamics and atmospheric dynamics, those types of things you use when you may be sitting around and going, how does this work Mm -hmm. kind of thing. But in terms of a day-to-day forecast, we look at numbers, we look at data that's already been uh, computed most of the time, and and we look at the sky too. We right, actually do look at satellites, that's and we so look nice up. That's so nice to hear. Oh yeah, we we look up every day. All day <laughs> no, long. that makes sense. So technology has really changed a lot of things. But I was Absolutely. wondering, like, if technology is as reliable as, let's say, my mom's arthritis. Oh, because mom used to say, "Yeah, rain's coming." You know, well, you know what? Of, that still works. D- does it really? Those, yeah, because the weather affects your health, and yeah, there are dynamics in your body that are are, are sensitive to pressure changes in the atmosphere and those types of things. We have some of the latest technology that we have here in terms of real technology. Um, our radar, which is Storm Tracker 4, it's the most accurate and powerful radar, but it is. It is an S band uh, radar, it is um, a Doppler radar, it's what we call dual polarization. So we can, when it scans around, it scans not only in the, vertic- uh, the horizontal, but also in the vertical. And so we can see uh, profiles more dynamically of the raindrops or the snow or whatever they are and can tell the difference between snow and hail and rain uh, as it's falling. And and we still have the display where you can see it on the screen. You know, there's the rain, there's the snow. It's very sophisticated. So the technology, of course, has just, I mean, and it's still getting better and better and better. Oh my goodness. But that fine tuning for us here at WNBC helps us in uh, warning people, letting them know what's here, what's coming. Um, we have a, a access to a Doppler radar that's actually on wheels on a truck that you can drive up close to the storm and see even more uh, in, in terms of what is happening outside. But, you know, the, the technology is incredible. Satellite technology is incredible now, uh, which helps us a great deal every day, not just seeing clouds, but you can also see the ice caps and the glaciers if they're melting, like the comparing pictures of like now and then and 
it's it's like amazing. It's really incredible. Which is a perfect segue to the next thing because mm-hmm. you're in, you're on the front lines of looking out and looking at all this information, looking outside. And you can see that the climate is changing. Yeah. I mean, I don't think that there's anything controversial about climate change, but for some people, it's this whole political thing. What would you say about how the climate's changing and and how you're handling it? Well, climate change is 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 something that we've known about for decades. You know, this is not something that just started happening. It's just that we have more data now and we have more technology to be able to see more precisely what's going on. You know, the climate's been changing since the Industrial Revolution. Ever since uh, factories and cars and things like that came out, you know, that's when the climate started changing. But we didn't know that it would happen to such a degree until later on when we started to see some of those changes. And so it took a while for it to become part of uh, such a large part of our climate changes. You know, we know the climate, there's, there's cycles. Everything is cyclical. Right. But the fact that the, the, on the graph uh, from since 1970, there's been this dramatic rise, even in the last 20 years, even more dramatic, and how fast the warming is happening. So we know from satellite data and, and ground data and other d- types of computer forecasts that this is, induced by greenhouse gases, which we didn't have, you know, 20,000 years ago, uh, 100 million years ago, you didn't have, that's, you know, the the earth changed, of course, uh, because there was more carbon carbon dioxide 100 million years ago, but then there were different kinds of plants and kinds of animals and there weren't any people there, you know, it wasn't, you didn't have cities. So, you know, now we see what's happening now that we have industrialized and that there are people here and that the sea levels are rising. And what does that mean for people who live at the beach or live along the coast? Should they be living there? You know, what does it mean for people like what happened in Australia uh, with the devastating fires? One thing that we know about climate change, and the majority of people know climate change, but people know, they can see it. If you look out of the window, you can see. I grew up in New York, and I remember four distinct seasons. Yes. And in the last 25 years, it's shifted. Can you s- like there are there are like a three week period that seems to shift one season to right. the next. Yeah, these are the things that we're seeing more of the extension of warmer patterns, um, the fact that uh, we're not seeing as many days with frost. Our overnight low temperatures are warmer and getting warmer, so it's not as cold at night. That's one of the bigger things versus the daytime highs. It's the nighttime lows we're seeing in that. Not just in big cities, we're seeing it in other communities as well. So it's it's sort of a it's a process that has taken many many years to get to this point, and now it's going to take maybe even longer to get to the other side of the tipping point because, um, you know, the, the climate changing and this is a global thing. It's not just happening here. Right. It's it's global. What we do and what everybody else does affects everybody else. We're seeing more extremes in weather. That's one of the signals. Um, more rainfall. Uh, more drought wildfires like what we saw in Australia. These are real things that are happening. These are real things and I know some of those movies that we used to see in the past like um, The Day After Tomorrow and you know so those are things in that film that are either happened or are now happening. So you know I mean it seems like science fiction but it's not. It's real. It's real and you know if we don't start curving back or figuring out ways which I mean a lot of companies and governments have done that. Right. But it takes a lot more at the stage now. We're at the stage now where we would have to completely overhaul our whole like energy 
electrical, mm-hmm. everything system, mm-hmm. which costs money. Right. And and I think that's what happens when it becomes more like a controversial thing. Not that the science isn't real, because the science is. It's that companies and governments will have to spend a lot of money to make these changes, and they're just not as willing to do it. now. Even um, if they're not realizing that long term, that investment is going to be really well saved. You have to spend money in order to save in the end. And I think when you see a number like a trillion dollars, it's like, I'm not, you know, you might think that's a lot. But in the end, you could spill multiple trillions of dollars in the end down the road. So, you know, yeah. what is your cost, do- dollar cost averaging here? So right. it, it's, a, it's a lot. It's a lot. And it's understandable how, you know, it can be daunting. But it is something that we have to be cognizant of. And yes, we can do many things as citizens. There are lots of things we can do, but it, it's also, it's not just about citizenry, it's business also right. that has to be a part of it. And, and people are doing a lot, um, but we just have to do more to curb it, to slow it down, because it's happening no matter what we do. Mm-hmm. Have you ever chased a storm? Have you ever been in one of those storm chasing, like Pers- Twister? <laughs> uh, I have never actually gone storm chasing. A friend of mine who works here at NBC um, does storm chasing, and she has invited me to go. But it would be a great piece, a great segment, or a series to talk about storm chasing. Um, and we could take our Doppler on wheels out, too. I would love to go. I have um, uh, never actually chased. I've been very close to a tornado, not realizing how close I was. I actually saw the parent cloud, like the, the, the cloud that where the tornado would drop from. Yikes. I saw it as I'm riding, driving across a bridge, and I'm like, oh my gosh, is that a wall cloud? I think there's going to be a tornado. And literally like five minutes later, a tornado did drop out of that wall cloud. So I missed it by moments. Um, But no, um, I've always been sort of afraid of that. Like it seems scary but exciting at the same time. But I I think I may do it now. Oh boy. Yeah. That does sound exciting. Do you have a favorite kind of weather? Sunny and 82 degrees. (laughs) (laughs) On a beach. (laughs) No, I mean, I... I enjoy the changes in terms of forecasting. You know, as you get older, when you think about where you want to live later in life, it's like, yeah, I would like to live in a sunny climate where it's warm. But, you know, weather, the fascinating thing about weather is the cha- the changes. And even though climate changes um, can be a frightening thing, it's fascinating to study and learn because it's not only, climate change doesn't just affect us as people, it affects ecosystems, mm-hmm. plants and animals and things that will go extinct at some point, even if we try to if, do as much as we can now to stop it, there will be things that will happen that we can't stop. But um, it's just a fascinating field, all of meteorology, all of weather, because it's never really the same that much, unless you're in California, which it's funny because yeah. I lived in San Francisco, so it was like sunny and foggy. afternoon, foggy in the morning, you know, <laughs> More but, foggy. but but even they're seeing changes in their weather, too. So, um, yeah, it's I cool. know that when I lived in L.A., that was one of the most difficult transitions for me was that the weather didn't change. Yeah, it felt like I was living in like a nuclear winter and five years went by because right. it was always kind of sunny. <laughs> Occasionally there'd be a rain. Yeah. You lived in L.A., too. Yes. And the smells change. Yeah. Well, the smells would be yeah, really yeah, I lovely. I the seasons from the smells. Yeah, Night Jasmine always blues. had a nice smell. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yes. I enjoyed that. But, and I loved it when it rained. Yes, that, yeah. Everybody loved it. Right, yeah. It's like, yeah. Well, and the air is so clear. And the air clears yeah. out, oh, and you can see the mountains and everything yeah. when the air clears. Yeah. And people from California, especially like the coastal areas, it rains like two drops, and it's like... You know, they you might have like tinnitus drive. or snow. Like, right, they don't have to drive or nothing. Yes, it's so it's funny. <laughs> it's hysterical. 
It's hysterical. So you're part of New York Fabric by now. You've been you've been around for 25 years, and I'm wondering, like like the experience we had just coming up in the elevator with you, where everybody knows you out in the streets. Do people like say to you, you know, hey, great weather report, or what happened? I'm supposed to get married. It's supposed to be sunny. Um, always. Comments like that. Yeah, you get those. I mean, usually people. They're not quite sure it's you when they see you. It's like they know you, but it's like, where do I know her from? Um, I had this lady, I was in line at a grocery store, and I was behind her, and she turned around. She saw me. She says, anybody ever tell you you look like that lady who does the weather on TV? I said, all the time. And I never said who I was. And she just kind of went, yep, you look like her. And then she kept going. It was really funny. But, um, yeah, people love talking about the weather more than anything. You know, and and that's their way of sort of identifying with you. It's like, hey, not good weather. Thanks for the thanks for the weather is the favorite one. Aww. Even though I have nothing, absolutely nothing to do with it. When it's nice, people always thank me like I had something to do with it. I said, and I always go, you're welcome, because yeah. And then sometimes I go, well, it's not me, but I'm glad you like it. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, it's kind of cool. You actually did do a little animated series. You did, I did. a voiceover part. What was your character's name? Stormy, Stormy Gale. Yeah. What was the show? Uh, Cyber Chase. Tell me about that. Well, Cyber Chase is a PBS. Now you're getting into my territory because I do voiceovers. I know. You do voiceovers. Well, I was like reading we'll, that going, uh-oh. We'll talk about your acting stuff in a minute. But, uh, no, yeah. No. So um, I just got a call one day to be a voice. on. They were doing a segment on Cyber Chase, which is like a kid's show on PBS, mm -hmm. where they're si it's all about science and math. And um, there's this group of kids, it's almost like Scooby-Doo, where they go around and adventures and stuff, and then the things happen, and they got to figure out how to get out of something by using science or math. And this one was about the fog. It was about weather and the fog. And I was the TV meteorologist. I was purple, and I floated on a cloud, and <laughs> I had red hair, and it was really, but it was so, so much fun to be a part of something like that. Great. Yeah, it was re really. Oh yeah, and in your acting career, Missy. Okay, let me just tell you how I know Nancy. Uh -oh. And I know she's gonna know it immediately. So, um, one day I was sitting, I was watching this movie, and, and I'd seen this movie many times. And then I saw you on CBS Sunday Morning, Do Us Peace. And I'm like, wait a minute. It took like a year <laughs> before I made the connection that that was you. Aww. But that scene from Working Girl. Oh, really? <laughs> Really? It, it, for any of you who don't really, if you've ever seen the movie Working Girl with Melanie Griffith, there Nancy is in a scene at the end of the movie. And when I realized, I made the connection, I was like, oh my God, that's Nancy. <laughs> and you and I hadn't even met. That's really sweet. Well, you know, what's funny is that scene in Working Girl, mm -hmm. and a lot of our scenes got cut for various reasons. Right. But that scene and that day when I was in that outfit mm -hmm. is very much connected to the very first essay I did with Sunday Morning about it was a kind of a funny essay about the conspiracy of oh. high heel shoes against women. Oh wow! A commentary that Nancy, yeah, Wyatt producer cut, oh. and and that's how we sort of connected in the oh, beginning. Oh, that's and so it's cool. a whole other tragic story, but that's so sweet to hear. No, Thanks. I mean it's it's I, I I tend to be I'm one of those people who when I love a movie I'll watch it over and over. We quote lines, my husband and I. It's so ridiculous, <laughs> right? And that's one of my favorite movies. Working girl. Oh man. I think my big line in that was when I said, beauty, as Harrison Ford was kissing Melanie Griffith. And that was kind of exciting. But in all my time in the business, there is still one person I have been dying to meet. 
had always said to, to myself, if I ever met President Obama, what would I do? Would I literally pass out and not be able to talk or anything? I mean, because, you know, this is huge for us. Is, I know. I'm thinking, I'm not going to be able to talk. I'm going to start crying or whatever. You just said President Obama and I gasped. Right. Okay. So I was invited with other meteorologists from around the country to interview him for the climate assessment report, which comes out like every four years from the government. It was a whole day, though, of White House stuff. We talked to other scientists and uh, policymakers and people like that. But when I got a chance to interview him, it was it was kind of like an out-of-body experience. But I was cool. I said, be cool. Just be cool. Don't be stupid. Talk. Speak. Say something. So we only got three minutes. Each person, only three minutes. I'm like, okay, I'm in my head. I've got the questions I want to ask. We were standing there, and they were miking us. And he came up, and you know, we shook hands and everything. And, you know, he had his jacket up and his sleeves rolled up kind of thing in the Rose Garden. In the Rose Garden. I'm like, I'm in the Rose Garden. And um, as we're doing this, the guy who's micing me is having trouble. He had no trouble micing anybody, but he was fidgeting and stuff. And so President Obama made a comment. He's like, um, you know, if you'd worn a tie, we'd probably be done with this by now. I said, yeah, well, this would look funny with this outfit. And he laughed. And then knowing that he was from Hawaii and my husband's grandfather was born and raised in Hawaii. And so I took an opportunity to talk about Hawaii. I said, so um, my husband is Kama'aina, and Kama'aina in Hawaiian means local. My husband's not from Hawaii, but his grandfather was. And so he looked at me funny, like I knew that word. He was like, so you married a local? I said, well, no, actually his grandfather. So we started talking about that, and he said, well, Michelle always said to me the reason why she married me was because she could get free trips to Hawaii. (laughs) (laughs) We laughed about that, and then the guy finally finished. But if he hadn't done that, I wouldn't have been able to engage him in that way. Because I wanted to ask, I wanted to get Hawaii in there somewhere, somehow. Holy cow. Yeah. I can't think of, I mean, this has been perfect. This is like... Uh, I mean, the only other thing that has nothing to do with that that I think is so cool that you've been involved with is your work with foster kids. Oh, my gosh. I'm so glad you asked. Yeah, Um, because that's wonderful. That is probably the most rewarding work I've ever done. It has nothing to do with what I do every day, but it has to do with people. How did that come about? Well, um... Our sister station, WRC, in Washington, D.C., was doing a Wednesday's Child segment regularly. And the, the at the time, the then Freddie Mac Foundation decided, you know what, we need to, they decided to sponsor their project. And then they realized, this is happening all across the country. Foster, children in foster care, the numbers are growing. We need to help these children everywhere, not just here in D.C. So we were the second site they came to in uh, New York, they had the DC one. They came to us. I said, "We want you. We want to sponsor this program for you and help you get your because New York City has more foster children, children in foster care at the time. It was like fifty thousand, mm. and I think in the nation it was like five hundred thousand. Wow, it's lower now. I think the numbers are in the teens of thousands now in New York. It's down. It's like maybe that's, fourteen thousand from like fifty thousand. That's a 000. huge reduction. It's a huge reduction. And these foster kids are older and they're harder to place and harder, harder to, to place. The older children are harder." Um, I saw a, a segment, it might have been on CBS Sunday Morning, of this young boy who had been adopted by a family. And he was an old, he was like eight, I think, when he was seven, when he was adopted. And he had been abused as, an, as a foster child, been in the hospital several times. And this family adopted this kid. And he loved older dogs because people don't want older children and older people. They want young babies and they want puppies but I want to foster older dog and the whole segment I mean I was uh, I was almost in tears because he said when he only wanted oh and his dog was 15 they had to put it down 
and he wanted to hold the dog the entire time he held the dog he wanted his mother to document the whole entire process taking pictures and the last picture she took was of him crying because he had never cried and he finally cried and he said when I grow up I'm going to adopt older children and older dogs and he went he found an older dog a new dog to bring home so anyway to say that yes it's harder it's hard to place because usually people want babies right but there's so many wonderful children in the system that need loving families and we were able to help almost 300 kids find permanent loving homes it's such an important thing um, a lot of people don't even think about it because they think if I have a baby then you know I can raise them the way I want but you still don't really know what a child will be one example that's the best example I have of how foster care or how adoption is a success we featured a kid his name was Jonathan on one of our segments this was kind of early on and he was out of control. During the segment when we were filming it or videoing it, taping it, he was running amok everywhere. We couldn't even get him to sit down and do oh an interview, like a one-on-one. -on -one. We had to talk to the foster care worker. And um, he was throwing things, and we went to the Big Apple Circus, and he was throwing things at Bella the Clown, and oh it was no. like, it was crazy. And I felt so badly afterwards, I said, this poor child will not, who's gonna adopt this kid when they see him? Cut to a year later. We were at um, an adoption event in Central Park, and lots of people spoke, and I spoke, and at the end I was still standing at the podium, and people were moving off to different things, and I hear a little voice go, Janice, and I looked down, and there's a little boy there, and I recognized him. I was like, Jonathan? And I'm thinking, that can't be Jonathan, because A, he never spoke my name. We never talked that day. He said, yeah. I said, oh my gosh, how are you? He said, I'm good. He said, guess what? I said, what? He said, I got a family. And I thought I would just fall to the floor. I said, where? He said, over here. So I go down and this family who had been fostering other children, and they were a couple on Staten Island, older, not like young people, they decided to adopt him. He was a different child. He did a 180. He was calm. He was smiling. He knew my name, oh which my I didn't even God. think he knew. So we did a success story on him. We went to his house, and he sat on the steps with his little, and, and we did an interview. I, and he spoke to me. It matters. It changes people's lives. And that is the most important thing I've ever been a part of. Well, you're changing people's lives, and you're fantastic. Well, thank you. I oh mean, my god! I mean, I thank you so much for having me. Oh be my a part gosh. of your show. It's this is I've been I've been waiting and waiting to talk to you because oh I just god. I just love you. I oh, love everything Janice. that you do. I watch you anytime you have a piece. Oh on. my! I'm always watching it because you're just special, especially since I knew you from a movie for so long. <laughs> and you're a Jersey girl. So That's part Jersey. Well, that's our show. Thanks to our wise weather woman, Janice Huff. We appreciate you. The Giles Files was created by Nancy Giles and Nancy Wyatt, produced, directed, and edited by Nancy Wyatt, and recorded at our studios in Weehawken, New Jersey. We'll be back soon with another boffo episode of The Giles Files, okay? Hoda Media Production.